If you're thinking right now, hey, I wasn't done with worship, um, you're going to get a chance to do a little more in a, in a few minutes. I'm going to take you to Acts 13 first, though, and then uh, Michael's going to lead us in another song. Acts 13 is where we left off at last week, and maybe while you're turning there, you might want to put your finger in Matthew chapter 10 as well. If you have a Bible with you, you can do that. If you didn't bring one, you'll find them in the rack in front of you, but there's free Bibles in the back of the church. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to pick one up on your way out when you leave today. Really want you to have a copy of God's Word. Did you hear me? It was free, right? Okay. I think many people don't believe that. I've heard people say, wait, is there a cost to those? No, they're free. Okay. So there's some back there. If you need a Bible, pick one up. Um, we're going to jump into Acts 13 and Matthew 10 in just a minute, but I'd like to pray with you. But before I do that, just a heads up, um, it's been about six weeks since we talked about um, what's going on with the building relocation potential. Some of you who are new here may not know that we've been in discussions about uh, regarding the former L&L grocery store in the corner of Hazlitt and Marsh Road. And the discussions have been ongoing, they're going well, and so hopefully we will have some details for you in the next two weeks. Don't hold me to that, okay? But I'm hoping, hopefully in the next two weeks. So that's going well, continue to pray about that. Would you do that? Um, Let's take a minute and pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can confidently declare um, that we are washed, If we're a believer this morning, we can say that you have made us white as snow. Thank you for that truth, that you've removed that sin stain from us. I pray that you would translate that relationship that we have with you into a deeper understanding of who you are this morning. And you would cause us to not just encounter you through your word, but Father, that deep within us, these texts will resonate with us, even if they make us uncomfortable. Father, help us to grasp more fully the awesomeness of your character. I pray for those who are investigating this morning, those who are perhaps not there yet, that are not necessarily believers, that you'll help them, that you'll surround them with your Holy Spirit to understand the things that are being explained this morning that the reality of Jesus will will encounter us in such a way that no one will leave here with any misunderstanding whatsoever. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen. So over the last week when we were in Acts chapter 13, we saw the reality of the power of the gospel. If you're not familiar with that word gospel, I'll explain that in just a minute, exactly what that means. We saw last week where we left off in verse 40 that Paul very clearly presented what it means for Jesus to come to planet earth and what he did for us. Uh, Jesus himself said the gospel has an effect on people and on circumstances. It has an effect on you with an A, but an effect with an E, meaning it cannot remain neutral. You have to make a decision regarding the things that you hear. To the degree, Jesus said, that it can even cause the nearest relative, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, mother-in-law, brother, sister, grandfather, to be separated because of the power of the gospel. Let me show you an example of what Jesus said, and this is why I wanted you to go to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 34 is the beginning of it. He said this, "'Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth.'" I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Uh, that verse may catch some people by surprise because we think of the Christmas story. Angels show up on the hillside and say, wait, peace on earth, glory to God in the highest, right? And immediately begin thinking of Jesus being the King or the Prince of Peace. Well, He is the King of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Peace will reign on earth at His second coming. But He makes very, very clear statements in Matthew 10.34 that the Gospel does things that you can't remain neutral when you hear the Gospel. So let me take you to Romans, because Romans 1.16 says something very specific about the Gospel. Paul said it this way. He said, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God. Now, if you're not familiar with the term Gospel, here's what it means. It means good news. So the word gospel was always associated with a military campaign. Christianity took the word and brought it into Christianity. Gospel, the term gospel is an ancient word, and it was always used of a military commander who would go and conquer a city. And when that city was conquered, he would send a rider back to his home territory with the gospel, the good news. The victory has been won. The king has accomplished a victory. That's the gospel. So here's the gospel as it pertains to the Bible. The king came to planet earth. He accomplished his goal. He died, died for our sins, died on the cross to the glory of God, was buried, resurrected, and is coming again. That's the gospel. And somebody texted me two weeks ago and said, can you explain the gospel to me in just two sentences? Uh, they were talking to a coworker and they were trying to explain it to somebody at work. And so I, I did the best I could to put it in a nutshell for them. But that's what it is, that Jesus came, that he lived among us, that he was crucified, died, buried, and then rose again and is coming back again. That's the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that truth because it's the power of God. So let's deal with this word power because it relates to Jesus using the word sword. The word power in the Greek language is the word dunamis. And from the English language, it means dynamite. So when we think of dunamis or dynamite, we think of something explosive. So Paul is writing, it is the explosiveness of God unto salvation. Here's why. When the gospel is presented... The results are explosive because the gospel confronts sin. And when the gospel confronts sin, you have to do something with it. When the gospel confronts sin, you have two opposing energy forces. So think in terms of eighth grade science class. Your science teacher perhaps gave you magnets and told you to push the magnets together, the positive against the positive, and the magnets repel each other, correct? You have two energy forces trying to come together or opposing each other, pushing away. So we understand the exact same thing is true of the gospel. The gospel confronts sin, and the gospel is the power of God. And when the power of God confronts the wickedness or the evil of sin, there's an explosive reaction when the gospel is presented, the results are explosive. There's a positive transformation, meaning it can change the landscape. But when the gospel is presented, it can also cause a negative explosion. Individuals can become infuriated by it, and it can be a negative circumstance because the gospel confronts sin. And when the gospel confronts sin in our lives, we have to deal with the outcome of sin. So if I've lost you on the first part, hear this. 
Because the gospel strips us bare, we stand before the eyes of God completely naked. That stripping can infuriate those who are full of pride. So it really comes down to an issue of pride versus humility. Who am I in the eyes of God? That's what we're dealing with this morning. So the exposure of guilt in our life can cause one of two reactions. Sometimes it will force people to brokenness. And they will recognize I'm a sinner in the eyes of a Savior who is holy and I need that Savior. But for others, it will infuriate them and force them to a passionate rejection. Uh, If you're new here this morning, you may be wondering, what did I just walk into? I thought this was a happy place. Well, that was last week, okay? We, We deal with really raw truth here. And occasionally, we come against very hard passages. We don't skip over them. This morning, you're going to see not necessarily theologically hard, but a reality hard truth. So let me take you back to Matthew chapter 10 and show you what Jesus actually said when he talked about the sword. It says this in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Why? Because conflict will occur when the truth of the gospel is shared. Meaning Jesus becomes the dividing line in your workplace, in your house, in your neighborhood. When you share the reality of the gospel, Jesus says, I am a dividing line. You're going to see that come out this morning in Acts 13. In Acts 13, where we left off last week, we saw this really serious side of Paul where he almost became provoking towards the end in verse 41 when he he announced what the gospel was, and then he said to people, take heed, don't ignore what I'm telling you, lest judgment would come upon you. You can't reject what you've been offered. Well, what was the result of the truth that he delivered? Well, the result was the people want to know more. They appear to express belief. Go with me to verse 42. Acts 13, 42 says this, As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. My experience, when you share the gospel, typically there's two reactions. Some respond immediately. We saw that last week. 17 individuals said, I want Jesus in my life. Individuals identified, I need that. But in other situations, others say, I want to investigate that further. I want to know more. Well, apparently this latter group here is intrigued by what they've heard. The dynamic teaching is exciting to them. And they like to know more about this Jesus. Paul has spoken about God's sovereign choice and God's care. So some of them are so affected, they can't wait to the next Sabbath. They literally follow Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue into the streets of Antioch. And they've got this ongoing dialogue as Paul and Barnabas are walking along the streets. Well, eventually, Paul and Barnabas say, wait, just stop. Just continue on in the grace of what you've just declared to be true in your life. Individuals who have declared that they're following Jesus. Why does he say that to them? Because some people in the crowd have expressed belief in Jesus. They verbally have indicated, yeah, we want that. We want the forgiveness. We want eternal life. 
So he says, continue on in the grace of God. Meaning, if the faith is genuine, if it's real, you're going to confirm your confession by continuing to walk in the grace of God. John shows us what the opposite of that looks like. 1 John, let me show you on the screen. It says this in 1 John 2.19. Those who went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. Meaning this, there are those who will say that they believe in Jesus. There are those who will say that they're a follower of Christ, but there is no evidence in their life. As a matter of fact, the opposite can be true. Their walk can be done in such a way that you begin to question, was that confession of Jesus real? Or were they just doing lip service? John's saying there are those who are going out from us who give no evidence whatsoever. Their lifestyle is such that they're engaging in things that doesn't reflect a Christ follower. Well, Jesus says the indication of whether or not somebody's really a Christian is how they persevere. Here's how he said it. He said it this way in John 8.31, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. What does abiding look like? Staying true to the things that Jesus called us to. It's the sign. It doesn't save you. Perseverance doesn't save you. Hear me on that. It's not a works-based thing. But perseverance is the sign you are saved. Maybe you were here during the study of Hebrews last year. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, For we have become partakers of Christ, 3.14, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now apparently the people who have just heard Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue are really excited about what they heard. And they get very rambunctious about this information. And they do a great job of spreading the information in the city because of what verse 44 says. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas have been, invite, Barnabas have been invited back, right? The people of the synagogue want to hear more. They invite them back, open invitation. Word has spread like wildfire throughout the entire city. And the Gentile population begins showing up. The significance of what those people heard is so relevant to their mind, so mentally unrelenting that Jesus will forgive sin and give eternal life. The next Sabbath, they're back and they bring friends who are also anxiously, really wanting to hear the Word of God because the enthusiasm is contagious. There's so much energy behind it. So that's true of the Gentiles. But of the Jews who call the synagogue their home, who are intrigued by the things they've heard but have not made a decision yet, those individuals are watching the Gentile population of a large city flooding towards their synagogue. And it's becoming very clear. Paul is going to treat this like a common theater. He's going to begin speaking to them without even pointing them to Judaism first. What's up with this? And it translates over to some degree of irritation and hostility. Verse 45, it says this, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So the situation is rapidly deteriorating. I think it's the size of the crowd, for one thing, that makes them jealous, but it's also the makeup of the crowd. Now think back. Seven days ago when we studied this, or you can just read it yourself in chapter 13, the earlier verses, it was very clear there was an initial response to Jesus. 
People were enthusiastic about what they have heard. They're saying this is something that we want. Now what we see is the absolute reversal. They're splitting along the lines of racial tension. Jew versus non-Jew. We can't have this among us. Is this not an amazing reversal? Verse 45 says the Jews saw the crowds. They're filled with jealousy. What causes that? Pride. I told you this is an issue of pride versus humility. So what causes that? Pride, a little bit of prejudice going on. Salvation is available to the Gentiles. Few things infuriated an Old Testament Jew like the thought that God would be extending His grace to the heathen Gentiles. Wanted a, a case classic example of that? Read the story of the book of Jonah. If you haven't read that before, maybe, maybe you've heard the story of Jonah and the whale. Jonah is a, a book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters long. Fascinating story. And Jonah is a classic example of that. God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell the people about who I am, that I'm a God of grace. Jonah says, no, I think I'd rather go to Italy and make pizza. So he jumps on a ship and he sets across the Mediterranean, right? And God causes a storm to rise up and he ends up getting swallowed by a whale. Eventually, the city of Nineveh turns to God. And what does Jonah do in response? You see in Jonah chapter 4, he says, God, will you just kill me? Because I don't want to live if the Gentiles are going to be followers of you. That's how much prejudice is really going on. You, you catching that? that? That's the context of what's behind the thinking here. Not only does the jealousy, the jealousy infuriate this people, it stirs them to action. Because remember what Jesus said? The gospel is explosive, dunamis, got this dynamite-type force to it. They're so infuriated, they begin, according to verse 45, contradicting the things that Paul has just said. It's written in the Greek language in the imperfect tense, which means this. It's a continuing action. It's not a one-time accusation. It's more like this. Paul, you're a liar. Paul is a lying man. You can't trust him. Don't believe what he said. The things that he's saying are untrue. Do not believe that. Don't go there. Paul is a liar. Now, times how many people in the synagogue all saying that to the Gentiles? You can't believe what he's saying. They're contradicting the things spoken by Paul. Now, they're going to step it up a notch. Why? Because the gospel is explosive. So they're going to take it up a notch to the point where they're going to blaspheme. In your notes this morning is the Greek word blasphemeo. You'll see it on the screen as well. That particular word is speaking of what's done towards an individual. So they're blaspheming someone now. They're contradicting Paul, but they begin to vilify. It says to speak impiously or to defame. Who would they be blaspheming, church? Jesus. It's one thing to contradict Paul, to say, you're a liar. It's another thing to begin blaspheming Jesus and his name. Paul recognizes that's something that he did to people. Acts chapter 26, verse 11, Paul says, I did that at one time. I drove people to the point where I was trying to force them to blaspheme. He says, I punished them often. This is before he was a, a Christian, before God met him on the road to Damascus. He says, I punished them often. I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them. That, that's what's going on here in the synagogue. So hear this this morning. If you're a person 
who tends to want to share your faith. You want to talk about Jesus in the workplace or in your home environment or in your neighborhood. The opposition that you encounter in those settings, that opposition is not directed so much against you as the messenger as it is against Jesus himself. You understand that? Because Jesus said, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first, right? You heard read that before? He says, if they hate you, it's because it started with me. You're the messenger. You're the one whom I have sent out. The focus is really toward me. So in context here, by speaking evil of Jesus, they're making clear their initial profession was completely false. It was not real. A believer will not blaspheme Jesus. So these individuals have taken their only hope for salvation and tossed it aside because of pride in their life. They don't want the Gentiles to come to God. They don't want other people to hear about salvation. They have no interest in this direction, so they're going to refocus their attention. So we're told this, according to verse 46, Paul had a response. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So Paul was really, really clear in verse 38. If your eyes just drift back up there, if if your Bible is open, you'll see that he talks about forgiveness of sin being available to everyone who believes. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus will forgive you of your sins. He was really clear about that in verse 38. But these individuals are so stubborn They're absolutely contradicting and now blaspheming who Jesus is. And so Paul's response is, you have just pronounced judgment upon yourself. You have pronounced yourself unworthy of eternal life. What did Jesus say the effect of the gospel would be? That he would be bringing a sword, not peace on earth? So as the fury intensifies, Paul and Barnabas don't back down. Because Jesus warned us in advance, if you encounter opposition, it's because you're speaking for me. So as the fury intensifies, far from being frightened, Paul and Barnabas speak more boldly. Finally, they end the exchange. They end the argument by telling them, it was necessary that we come to you first. This was God's plan, that we come and talk to you, but you're rejecting it. Now, I hope as you read Acts chapter 13, you're putting on your lens of sorrow because what you're seeing here is really, really tragic. Would you agree with that, church? It is really tragic. These people have waited thousands of years for their Messiah. And because of pride and a hard heart, they're willing to say, no, I don't want it. I reject that because of what it calls me to So when he uses the word repudiate, you won't find this next word in your notes this morning, but you'll see it on the screen, the word apatheo. That particular word means to shove off. Uh, If you've ever been on a boat that's been tied to a dock, maybe the the rope is tied around a a mooring pylon, somebody had to shove off from the dock. That's, That's the concept behind this word. You've been attached to something. Something has held you. But you decide, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm pushing away. I have no interest. That's this word, apatheo. It has no place in my life. I'm not there. That's the concept. So Paul says, you have brought a verdict on yourself. 
meaning they had a choice. They have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So here's a really critical Bible truth this morning. Human responsibility in choosing to follow God absolutely lands on our lap. These individuals are separated from God by choice, but that's going to link very clearly with the predestination conversation we're about to have because we can't get out of this passage in Acts 13 without talking about predestination. So these individuals are going to be separated from God by choice. They've heard the truth, but they're rejecting what they know to be true. Now, you haven't seen Charles Simeon quotes from me in about three weeks, so I figure you're due, okay? So let me reach all the way back into 1836. Charles Simeon was commenting on Acts chapter 13, and this is what he had to say. The lack of humility betrays a total unfitness for the offer of salvation. A contempt of the most stupendous effort of God's love that mankind ever beheld. That's the way a man said it. Let me show you what God said. John 3, 18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What Jesus is making very clear for us is that people who choose to reject God, that choice shuts them out of eternal life. Jesus is making it very, very clear there. As a matter of fact, he steps it up a notch again. In John chapter 8, Jesus' own words, he said, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Maybe you've never heard this before. This might be your first time. Hear this. God holds every single person responsible for the choice they make about Jesus Christ. Every single person. We are responsible for what we know about Jesus. And these individuals, if they reject God's offer, they're guilty already, according to what Jesus said in John 8 and in John 3. Because we are born into sin, so we're guilty already. What Jesus does is He forgives us of that guilt. That's why we need the gospel, because it presents us with a choice. The choice is, do you want life or do you want death? So Paul and Barnabas respond boldly. What you see here in verse 46 is the turning point in the book of Acts. Up till now, it's been Jew, 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 Jew. We have seen spatterings of them reaching into the Gentile world. But at this point, Paul decisively is saying, fine, you're rejecting what Jesus is offering you? We're going to the Gentiles. They're glad to receive it. Move forward with me into verse 47. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. What's really ironic about that statement, and you obviously see it's in capital letters, Paul's quoting Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 was written 400 years before Jesus was born. Why was that statement made in the book of Isaiah? Because God said to the Jewish people, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my lights to the world. You're going to show people what it looks like to follow God the Creator. So we see Paul taking that exact same statement that God made about the Jewish people, and he's transferring it over to the Gentiles, saying, you're now going to be my light. You're going to be my witnesses to the Gentile people that they would know who Jesus is so that they understand. 
So go forward with me. We see in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. So isn't that an amazing contrast? The Gentiles hear, and for them, this is great news. They begin to celebrate. So what was struggling, stumbling news for the Jews has become the news of salvation to the Gentiles. The Jews are stumbling over the exact same thing that causes the Gentiles to celebrate. And we come to this really, really hard part of verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Predestination bomb gets dropped, right? And you've got to deal with it, even though it's right at the very end of the story. I want you to know that here in the Saturday night service last week, this caused us to go for like 40 minutes after the service during Q&A. Lots of questions. People, do you have questions this morning about predestination? Just raise your hand if you have a question about predestination. Oh, come on. The rest of you are lying. (laughs) I have questions about predestination, okay? Because it's not something we can easily understand, How does God appoint someone to eternal life? I thought I had a choice. Isn't that what we just saw in verses 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, that they made a choice to reject? But yet Dr. Luke says those who were appointed unto eternal life, those are the ones who believed. What do you do with that? That caused a lot of questions in the last service. It's going to cause questions in your mind. So don't feel like you're alone or unique in this. If you go to lunch today and somebody brings up the issue of appointment or predestination, because theologians have been debating over this for 2,000 years, what does this actually look like? Well, hear this. Maybe this is new to you. According to Ephesians chapter 1 and Revelation 13.8 and Daniel chapter 11, lots of passages in the Bible, God appointed Before the world began, meaning God foreknew, before the world began, before Mark Kring was born, before you were born, before Adam and Eve were created, God foreknew those whose names would be written in the Lamb's book of life. Matter of fact, the word that's used here for appointed is another military term. It's the word tasso. When a soldier would come to a military commander and say, I want to be part of that mission, I volunteer for that, the military commander would engrave or appoint the word tasso, their name in a plaque or on a piece of paper or on stone in some way to identify that that individual has been appointed to the mission that they're about to go on. So we find that same word applied here. That last phrase you're looking at in verse 48 is one of the clearest statements in Scripture concerning God's action in salvation. You and I play a role, but God plays a much bigger role. What you're seeing here is the balancing truth between the doctrine of human responsibility and the doctrine of predestination. The Bible is very, very clear that God chooses man. Man does not choose God. Jesus said in John chapter 6, you couldn't even come to the Father were it not granted to you. You couldn't come to me were it not granted to you. That's what Jesus is very, very clear about. It's not possible. Man doesn't choose God. God chooses man. So Peter uses language that we kind of understand but makes us uncomfortable. 
He says this in 1 Peter 1.1. Christians are those who are chosen. Okay? Let's take it one degree further. First Thessal- or 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul's writing. He says, I always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. If the concept of predestination is something that you've struggled with, maybe even causes you to trip, hear this. If God did not foreknow, could He be God? See, He's omniscient, right? He knows all things. He had to foreknow who would decide and who would not decide, who would reject and who would accept. He has to because He's God. If He didn't, He couldn't be God. So if you're tripping over that thought this morning, understand you're in good company People have tripped over this for a long time, but know this. The issues go hand in hand. He chose because he foreknows. He knows everything. So for our part, we are responsible to respond to the information that we have. Some respond unto salvation. Some respond to reject. You're seeing a prime example of that this morning. Gratefully, none of us know whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Unless you're a believer this morning, you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But we don't know who else's name, so Jesus gives us that great mandate in Matthew 28. Go out and be my witnesses, because you don't know. You don't get to know in advance whose name's in and whose name is not in. See, the issue of human will versus God's election is so incomprehensible to our minds. What the Bible demands of us is that we accept it even if we can't understand it. Are you good with that? Maybe, huh? (laughs) Okay, we'll move forward. You understand why it led to so many questions last night. So let's take the context of that thought. The context and apply it to the end of this story. The Gentiles hear who Jesus is, and they respond. They accept what they hear, and they take an active role in believing. They're committing themselves to Jesus. But it's in response to the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moving among them because they've been appointed for eternal life. So we're told to follow up to that, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. That means Antioch is turned upside down because Paul and Barnabas have been really bold. They're not teaching about politics. They're not talking about social justice. They're talking about Jesus. So on one hand, the gospel spreads. It's explosive. But on the other hand, there's people here who are unable to refute what Paul and Barnabas have said. So we're told in the next verse, the Jews begin to incite harassment. This is an age-old tactic. If you can't win the debate, you begin to pound on the other person, right? We'll show you not to talk about Jesus. We're going to bring out more powerful people, people who are in power. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Satan is very, very old, and he's very, very smart. And he knows that if he gets the A-listers working against the church, he can accomplish things. What you're watching is an ancient form of using the A-listers in the community to turn against the gospel of Jesus. Because the A-listers affect society, and they incite a crowd, and the crowd drives them out of the city and persecutes Paul and Barnabas. 
Not to start a new topic of conversation, but just to show you that Scripture speaks to Scripture. Paul, when he's a much, much older man, is writing to his disciple, his understudy, Timothy. And he tells Timothy, I experienced persecution in ways that I can't begin to describe to you. But he writes about it here in 2 Timothy 3.10. Let me show it to you. You, Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul understands who's in control. Even though the world is pushing against him, and the persecution is intense, he can say, I won't be shaken. God is the one who rescued me. Let's finish the story, verse 51. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Verse 52, and the disciples were continually filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul and Barnabas feel like they've cleared themselves. They've done exactly what they're supposed to do. The people refuse to repent. Fine, we're done. We've done exactly what we were supposed to do. We're gone. Iconium is 80 miles away. It's going to take them four days to get there. So they start out on a journey. What are they doing shaking the dust off their feet? They're following Jesus' own instructions. Jesus, in the book of Luke, we get a really clear description of it. He said, when you go into a city and somebody rejects you, well, let me show you the way he said it. Luke chapter 10, verse 10. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Whoa. <laughs> Pretty strong condemnation, right? Because if you're thinking of the story of Sodom, you're not wanting that to happen to you. But Jesus is really clear. These people are being left to their absolutely staggeringly inflexible unbelief. It's been explained to them so clearly by Paul that they said, yeah, we want that. But seven days later, the pride gets in the way and say, no, we want nothing to do with that. And they shove off. Apatheo. We don't want anything to do with it. That's why it's more tolerable for Sodom in that day. They didn't have hardly any information. These people have lots of information. Now, not all of them are unreceptive. Actually, the story ends on a positive note. You see the contrast there. It says the disciples are continually filled with joy and with the Spirit. That's talking about those who are believing in Jesus Christ. So Paul and Barnabas are leaving behind two groups. Those who have rejected Jesus and those who have embraced it to the point of receiving eternal life. Do you notice that there's no mention of a third group? See, there's no third alternative. You're either for Jesus or against Him. That's what Scripture is really, really clear about. This brief passage is just a stark contrast of the choice that faces you this morning if you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ before. that He will forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. But know this, when the gospel is shared, like we've shared it this morning, just like when we shared it last week, and in this setting in the first century, when the gospel is presented, the results are explosive. God promised that. It is the power of God unto salvation. So going forward, if you're a believer this morning, the opposition that you may encounter this week, maybe even today, the opposition that you might encounter in your neighborhood is not directed so much against you as it is against the one who is the content of the gospel message. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that we were going to face that. So here's how I want to close this morning. Then Michael's going to lead us in that song. I want to close by reading to you from Matthew 10, the verses just before verse 34. Because Jesus is talking to Christians. He's talking to his disciples in Matthew 10. So before you grab your car keys or your phone or get distracted, just hear this, okay? Let let me read this to you. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. How well does your God know you this morning? See, he not only knows the hairs on your head, how few or how many there are, he knew before you were born, he knew before the world was formed, whether or not you were going to accept or reject Jesus Christ. See, God not only knows the outside of us, he knows the inside of us. And that same God can say to us, do not fear. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Verse 32, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In context, Jesus is being very, very clear. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will encounter opposition. He says, just know what you've signed on for, but don't be surprised by it, okay? He told us it would be coming. I'm going to pray for us right now, and then Michael and the team are going to lead us through that song, I Will Not Be Shaken. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the truth that you've reminded us of this morning, that these things don't catch you by surprise, and you encourage us by saying, I know you so well, I even know the number of hairs on your head. Father, I I thank you that we can take that truth and translate it into courage and confidence. Not because we're so strong, but because you are. We can say we will not be shaken because you are not shaken. Father, we declare this truth this morning. For those of us who belong to you through Jesus Christ, we know that our destiny is secure, and so we can ultimately say we will not be shaken. Father, help us to sing with confidence. Help us to talk about you with boldness. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. And all God's people said... Amen.